Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The domestic season may be over, but we still have the closing stages of the Champions League and Europa League to play, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Uh, hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we bring you exclusive insight and stories from David and our team of writers. I'm Mark Chapman and, of course, I'm joined by David Ornstein. Coming up today, why Raul Sanlehi left his role as head of football at Arsenal and what it means for Mikhail Arteta. David, you're also going to tell us a little bit more about your chat with Mesut Ozil last week. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's one of the most polarising figures in football, so I've got to tread very carefully. It's like walking on eggshells when you talk about Ozil, but he is a fascinating character, and we'll get stuck into that a little bit later. Also, after another Champions League disappointment, are Manchester City players still as convinced by Pep Guardiola? Uh, and across the city, uh, the Athletics' Laurie Whitwell takes us inside Manchester United's plans to go the extra step and become winners next season. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around, including that Ozil exclusive from David. All you have to do, go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. So whilst I haven't been here, you now have a, a weekly YouTube show, do you? Yeah, been I branching do. Yeah. out? Okay. <laughs> Right, well, so David's uh, uh, weekly YouTube Q&A show, uh, Ask Ornstein. You can join uh, us on that if you want, if, if in a continuation of what, the um, what, double you title. Put, you mean put a question to you? No, you can I'll answer them. I'll be part of it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> you're far more informed than I am. Um, so uh, on this uh, weekly YouTube Q&A show, David answers uh, the very best questions provided by subscribers to The Athletics. So all you have to do is head over uh, to the TIFO podcast YouTube channel, watch the latest video, and then subscribe to the channel for more superb podcast content. We're going to start. Now, I know I haven't been here for a while, so has this happened on every single podcast that I have missed that you start with Arsenal? Have I got to bring a bit of editorial control back to this podcast? In your absence, it was actually normally Man United because we, we, we knew we wouldn't get as much cynicism, but um, it's almost like you've never been away that Arsenal have uh, returned to the forefront of the media spotlight. So, yes, exactly. We are starting this podcast with Arsenal and with a very good reason, of course, because head of football, uh, Raul Sanlehi, has left the club. David will explain why he left and what that means for Arsenal, Mikel Arteta and the players. There's loads to get stuck into. Uh, we're also joined by James McNicholas, who writes about Arsenal for The Athletic and also co-hosts the Arsenal podcast, Handbrake Off. Just before I bring James in, David, just start with you. Has this been coming for a while? Well, there have been lots of suggestions inside and outside of Arsenal that this could be coming. And there's all manner of reasons why that could be. And James will go into them, I'm sure, in much more detail. It felt like it had come 
to the point where this decision wasn't a great surprise. It was more the timing of it that was a shock. Now, Arsenal and Sanlehi have put it down to the effects of COVID. Uh, we saw that Arsenal made 55 members of staff redundant. And on top of that, they really decimated their scouting department, which they say is a bid to modernise. People will have their own take on that. But to see a, a week or so later Sanlehi go, it makes me think there is more to it. We don't know. Arsenal have assured us there's there's nothing to it. But he was in the middle of the negotiations over the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang new contract, over uh, the potential signing of Gabriel from Lille and Thomas Partey from Atletico Madrid. He's not just anybody at the club, he's the head of football. And so removing that person at that moment in time is really curious. And I'm sure we'll continue to look into it and ask questions about it. Certainly, both parties are presenting a pretty united front that it's all very amicable. But we'll see. It leaves Arsenal with a very interesting sort of situation because they went down this route of a continental model under Ivan Gazidis with various heads of department and a head coach just being dropped into the mix, part of the decision-making process, a real departure from the Arsene Wenger, all-powerful manager scenario. And now they've kind of gone back in that direction with a number of departures pre and during and post sort of the COVID crisis, with Arteta rising to the fore alongside Edu as technical director, Vinay Venkateshwam on the commercial side, basically heading up the club away from football, but coming into the football conversation when it comes to finances, Hus Farmi on the contract side, and they'll hope that that will lead them forward. But I've spoken to a lot of people that say this is a, a big loss for Arsenal and that losing the Sanlehi contacts book and, and his relationships will be a real blow. Others will say that it, it's a good thing. He hasn't performed so well. Arsenal have had a number of problems sort of on and off the pitch and, and Sanlehi didn't meet the expectations. The debate will rumble on, not least on this podcast. Well, yeah. And James, if I, if I bring you into it here, and I know David's mentioned COVID, do, do you think within the club they thought, well, we've announced that 55 members of staff are going to have to go we're going to have to get rid of somebody near the top to look like it's equal or do you think there are other reasons that's not something i've heard i have to say and an arsenal's statement about Sanye's departure didn't mention covid uh, it was actually in rao's personal statement that he cited covid as a, a cause for his departure he said that was the only cause in fact and like david i've I scrutinised that timeline and I'm not so sure. You know, you look six weeks ago, Arsenal appointed a guy called Tim Lewis, uh, a lawyer extremely well trusted by the owners, Stan Kroenke and KSC, as a non-executive director to the board. And our understanding is that Lewis's remit really was to ensure that the company, the business, the club was running efficiently in that time and to kind of uh, you know analyse and overview every department. Six weeks on from that, Raul Senier is gone. And given that his name, along with Vinay Venkatesham, was on the announcement of the 55 redundancies just 10 or 11 days ago now, it does feel like, although this may have been in the water, it may have been coming for some time, that there might have been some kind of catalyst because it does seem to have accelerated towards Raul's departure. We have spoken on this podcast before, myself and David and yeah. others, about what what is seemingly complicated executive structure mm. Arsenal have had over the last well since since Wenger's gone basically mm. that that there are there appear to have been too many cooks i think that that's uh, an interesting perspective i think as david mentioned 
Ivan Gazidis attempted to put in place a plan which I think anybody could look at on paper and say was quite sensible, really. He was the chief executive, and with Arsene Wenger heading towards the exit in 2018, he hired two guys to kind of work under him. One being Rousseau, who was said to be head of football relations, a guy with a great contacts book who was known in Barcelona as a, a guy who could make deals happen. You know, someone else would identify the targets, but he had the contacts, he had the wherewithal to get those deals over the line. On the other hand, he had Sven Mislintat, who was to be the talent spotter. Mm. And the idea that these two guys could work in conjunction under Ivan Gazidis, I think was fundamentally quite a sensible uh, prospect. Of course, what happened actually in reality was that Gazidis left just a few months later for AC Milan. He created a bit of an executive vacuum. Sanyehi stepped into that. Mislintat was pushed out. And arguably, ever since then, I think we've sort of seen Arsenal kind of uh, evolving in that situation without having a coherent plan. I mean, even the current technical director, Edu, uh, as far as I understand it, was not the first choice. I think they wanted Monchi, who's now at Sevilla, doing a terrific job there. So... Arsenal have kind of had to make do and mend ever since Ivan Gazidis walked out the door. Uh, and I suppose they'll be hoping that this point, with a maybe slightly more simplified, streamlined executive structure, could be a bit of a, a reset point for them. It's interesting that Ivan Gazidis clearly felt that his job was done. He brought that sort of new... Mm. Um, team to the table and that it was their job to take the club on and he had a very uh, attractive offer, challenging offer from AC Milan. Um, whereas many would argue that his job was by no means done and it, it was his duty really to help that new team blend together, to bond and and to, to lead the club forward as a collective. Certainly egos clashed. Um, there's been so much talk of influences. Uh, some people... Th- in in the process of compiling the piece that's live on The Athletic about why Sanlehi departed, said to me that he was perhaps a victim of placing too much trust in the hands of people around him. We know that he came from a commercial background uh, at Nike and then at Barcelona too. And although he is vastly experienced in football, he's highly regarded in some of the biggest corridors of power, you know, in UEFA committees, the ECA, and depending on who you speak to, you know, he's regarded as one of the game's leading uh, executives, movers and shakers. But equally, there's been a lot of focus and scrutiny on his relationships to a small number of agents and they've been particularly involved in a lot of deals Arsenal have done. Now there's no suggestion that there's any wrongdoing in those deals but perhaps that they were not the right deals for Arsenal. They haven't panned out to be as successful as they should be if you're going to rely on these sort of people. So people have scrutinised Keir Drabchian, people have scrutinised Arturo Canales. Many clubs have relationships, Wolves and George Mendes, for example, but it's about them being successful. That's the difference, isn't it? But fans are comfortable with an agent, well, maybe not comfortable, but more accepting of a club having a relationship with a specific agent if the majority of the players that come turn out to be successful. If, if you get close to one or two agents, but the players that they bring don't exactly deliver on the pitch, then fans start to be suspicious. We've got to point out that Arsenal have done a number of deals with other agents completely unrelated. Mm. Kieran Tierney, for example, Arsenal had a, a £20 million deal lined up for him. It was almost over the line. Unfortunately, in that period, with Arsenal stressing how cash-strapped they were and then going and signing Nicola Pepe for £72 million, Peter Lawwell at Celtic put the asking price up to £25 million. So they lost out on, on money there. However, 
Rao Sanlehi managed to get that deal done because of his relationship with Peter Lawwell. They've been friends for many years and people have said to me that that's what Arsenal will lose, those connections. And, and that had nothing to do with one of these agents we mentioned there. But on the flip side, yeah, th- there needs to be a success rate. And there's no black and white to this because over time, some of those signings might pan out to be a success. We look at Cedric Suarez having barely played for Arsenal and getting a four-year contract. The same with Pablo Mari. David Luiz getting an extension despite some mixed performances. But we may be sat here in a year's time lauding all three players. We take quite a small sample size and form judgments on it and it's a pretty tricky business. James, what kind of pressure does this put on Edu now? Because looking at it, this is all on him and Arteta. I think there's substantial pressure on Edu now, actually. And he's been with the club for a little while now, but he's not been especially foregrounded. And I think the presence of Senyayi kind of acted to shield him, really, to a certain extent. I think David's right to point out that Edu and Keir Jarabchian, by way of example of this kind of circle of agents that have been working around Arsenal, have a, a really big history together that goes back to Edu's time as a player and technical director at Corinthians. So I don't think that you can kind of pin Jarabchian's growing influence at Arsenal, as some say there is, on Sanyehi. I think you have to look at Edu too. I think that clearly he's now the most senior football figure in the club. And for a relatively young guy, that is quite extraordinary. And, you know, there's a huge responsibility on him in this window. I mean, David mentioned uh, Arsenal were not planning, it seemed anyway, for Raul to be out the door at this point. He was across a number of negotiations with Aubameyang, but with transfer targets too, that Edu and Hasfami, the contract specialist there, will now inherit. Arsenal expect that transition to be relatively smooth, but it is a test for Edu. And the scrutiny, I think, will be significant in over the next kind of six to 12 months where we find out to what extent, you know, was Raul Sanyehi responsible for the manner in which Arsenal was being run previously? Uh, and how is Edu potentially going to do things differently? Just to check on the contracts thing, both of you are on this. Um, obviously, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and negotiations on his contract. Who takes responsibility for that and other similar internal contracts going forward, given Arsenal's rather chequered past when it comes to offering players new contracts or allowing them to leave on a free. I mean, they've had various misses over recent years. That's a great point. So taking over now are Edu as technical director and Hasfami as contracts negotiator. They've picked up the Aubameyang situation and they hope to deliver it. It's been moving in the right direction, but it's got to be right and it's not done just yet and also the negotiations over potential signings, future contracts, etc. They're the two main men on that side. But you raise a very good point on these misses because one of Raul and Lehi's proclaimments, I think it was a couple of years ago now, was that Arsenal would outsmart the market, and I'm not sure that's been considered successfully done, and also that they would not let players go into the final two years of their contract in a way that Aaron Ramsey did. He was the example kind of used as a sort of never again principle. Well, James may correct me, I think 14 players at Arsenal are currently in that position, chief among them Aubameyang. And so there is a lot of work to be done at Arsenal uh, in in a very pressurised and unusual summer and transfer market. And they'll be up against it because, meanwhile, rivals with greater financial resource will be investing and are already ahead of them. The likes of Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United will be striving to do so. Chelsea 
as well. Tottenham too. And so it's not going to be easy for Arsenal. This is a really difficult period and it's going to have to be pretty expertly managed from the very top of the club, from the ownership, KSE. James mentions Tim Lewis has come on board as well. Josh Kroenke over the past couple of years as a director has been heavily influential, increasingly so, a, a more visible presence around the club. He was coming over a lot. COVID has restricted that and I'm sure it's been frustrating that he hasn't been able to get over at all during such a critically important period with so much going on at the club. And so what happens in the coming months there is going to be just fascinating. And the CEO in all of this? <laughs> well, just to, I mean, just to, I mean, you see, see, James. You know, we talk about too many cooks. Just to add another level into it as well, what does it, what's his remit now? Well, so Vino Venkatesham was kind of in a a joint CEO role, I guess you'd describe <laughs> it as, with Raúl Senyehi. When Ivan Gazidis left, his role was effectively divided in two between the the football and the sporting dimension of the club, as Raúl used to call it, and the business side. Now, obviously, with Raúl gone. Vinay kind of inherits the uh, the whole thing. I don't think he's been officially termed the chief executive yet, but for all intents and purposes, that is what he will be. And it will be interesting as well to see how he fares in that role. His background is in the commercial side almost entirely. Arsenal say that his involvement with the, foot, with the football side, with football matters, will be minimal, uh, that he'll be sort of deciding budgets and things like that. I think what's going to be really interesting is to see without wishing to complicate the picture any further for you, uh, how the board are involved here. So we talked about the Tim Lewis appointment to the board. The Arsenal board contains Josh and Stan Kroenke and also a couple of people who've been associated with Arsenal for a very long time, Lord Harris of Peckham and Ken Fryer. And until recently that board had kind of been a little bit sidelined from the decision-making process. The, the power rested with the executives, really. I think that Tim Lewis arriving there, who is the guy who advised Stan on his initial purchase into Arsenal over a four-year period, I believe, between 2007 and 2011, up until he took a, a majority stake in the company, his presence there has, as far as I can see, restored a little bit of authority to that traditional board. He's Some an Arsenal the, fan, isn't he? He's uh, a lifelong from, Arsenal fan. From the article fan. that's on The Athletic. He's yeah. a lifelong Arsenal fan, as are you know, a couple of the other figures there. And uh, I think that you know some of their grievances, some of their concerns about the way in which the club was being run maybe weren't reaching the ownership. But he operates, Tim Lewis, as a bridge between that traditional board and between Cronky Sports Entertainment, the, the company that owns uh, Arsenal. And I think that that will be interesting to see if they build from there. Will they add a bit more football expertise at that level? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, to be honest, if they look to diversify that board. They, we've already seen them strengthen it with Tim Lewis. I think there could be more additions to that uh, to come. So the picture, although it appears simplified, there could be a couple of new figures uh, sometime soon. James, there was a small bit of info in the piece we've written about a move that the a board member tried to make to speak yeah. to Arteta being blocked and that the signing of Willian uh, and the finalising of the contract taking place at the home of Kia Jurabchian didn't go down well. Can you explain a bit more on that? Yeah, so I think there were a couple of issues that the board were unhappy with. There's the one that you mentioned where a board member wanted to speak to Arteta one-to-one. Rousenier didn't feel comfortable with that. He felt that the the sporting side of the business was his domain and as kind of the executive manager of that area, he should be present at that meeting. Now, that did not sit well with the board and was duly passed on to the ownership and may have contributed to the decision they ultimately made. There was another instance as well where the board wished to appoint David O'Leary, who 
courses. I think Arsenal's record uh, appearance holder certainly was at some point incredibly closely associated with the club. They wanted to add him to the board to uh, offer a degree of football oversight. That was again rejected, that proposal, by the executive committee led by Raul Sanyehi. So that created a little bit of division, I think, between those two entities. Uh, on the Willian point, yeah, we understand that Willian's official contract signing took place uh, not at Highbury House, not in the Emirates Stadium, not at London Colney Training Ground, but at the home of Kia Jarabcha. Now, there are potential explanations for this. We understand it may have been the appropriate place from a, a COVID point of view, that they wanted to find a kind of neutral venue where this could take place. But nonetheless, I think the optics of that would not have sat well with the Arsenal ownership. You know, Stan Kroenke is a guy who, when he bought Arsenal, he bought a club that came with certain uh, values associated with it. You know, there was a brand with Arsenal that came with a certain degree of this idea of class and doing things the right way. And I think some of the discussion that has played out around Arsenal, around the influence of third parties and intermediaries in recent months, would not have been to his taste and he would not have enjoyed that one bit. And, you know, that could also be another contributing factor to Arsenal arriving at this decision to to part ways with their head of football. And let's move it on to Mesut Ozil, shall we? David, you spoke exclusively to him for The Athletic about a range of issues uh, last week. How would you describe his mood last week compared to when you spoke to him last year? Exactly the same. He's one of the most resilient, strong, unflustered people I've come across in sport. You're going to be criticised for pretty much anything you say on Ozil because he's got such an army of supporters and there's such an army of opponents and no one really sits in the middle. And when people like us try to, uh, we get criticised and praised in equal measure by sort of both sides. He clearly loves living in London and he says he loves playing for Arsenal. He clearly believes that he has a lot still to offer to the club and he does speak very passionately about that. I, I was really taken aback by how genuinely, even when I pressed him on the fact that he's not playing, the fact that it would appear that the club would like to move him on, he's adamant that he can still offer to the club. He's adamant that he's in good shape and will be in good shape and will be ready. And yes, you then point to the contract and say is it just because you want to see it out and get your money and he points out that he could have earned much more by leaving as a free agent in 2018 when he signed a new contract and I do think there would still be offers from around the world if he was seeking them but he's not interested in any offers he's not interested in leaving or trying to negotiate with Arsenal about seeing him on his way he thinks that Mikel Arteta knows the quality that he can provide he showed it by playing in all 10 of the Premier League games Arsenal uh, played ahead of the stoppage for the Covid crisis, uh, despite pl playing not a single second subsequently. There's clearly still a, a lingering disappointment from the Unai Emery era when we don't know the exact nature of what went on, but he fell out of favour then as well. And it's been a really unpleasant period, I'm sure, for him. Uh, for everyone around Arsenal, this is there's no winners in this. It's a distraction. It's a sad state of affairs because he's clearly such a talented player. Many will point out that if Arsenal had built a team around him and played to his strengths as Real Madrid did um, and in the early days at Arsenal, if Arsenal hadn't sold a lot of their creative players, the likes of 
or let go the likes of Sanchez, Mkhitaryan, Iwobi, Ramsey, Castola, where the statistics prove, you know, that Ozil flourishes when he has many creators around him, then it we would have been talking about a very different picture here. He's very calm. He he is not bothered by the criticism. It doesn't get to him. He did passionately want to articulate his side of the story. And I just really hope for everyone involved that they can uh, knuckle down and find some amicable solution to this. And, and by that, I mean on the pitch, because he's not going anywhere. He's made that very clear. Why does he think he's not playing? Well, still, that's not entirely clear. I put that to him. And uh, the only thing he really hinted at was the 12.5% pay cut that he rejected because just looking at it logically, he played every Premier League game under Arteta before then and none afterwards. And clearly that was a very important moment for the club. He says he doesn't know if that had a bearing, but that perhaps it did. He said, I'll always stand up for what I believe in. And Arteta has suggested it was purely football reasons. Clearly, while respecting that, he doesn't agree with it. And what I do know is that from Arteta's perspective, the door is not closed on Mesut Ozil. He will offer opportunities to every player on an equal footing, he says, to prove their case in training and in matches, to show their behaviour, the complete package, is good enough to get into the team. He felt after lockdown that certain players deserved chances. They had been involved in every single training session, the likes of Reese Nelson, whereas Mesut Ozil, his wife had given birth to their first child. And so perhaps he was fractionally behind. I think he mentioned in the interviews that he uh, his sleep had been affected a little bit, but that's normal. And he did feel that he was in perfectly good shape to play. He was on the bench a couple of times, though he didn't get on. He did have a small back injury and so that might have contributed to it. And by the time he was fit, Arsenal were winning games and and progressing towards their FA Cup victory over Chelsea. So I actually think as an optimist, there, there is a chance that Arteta could reintegrate him. He's played with him. He knows his character and qualities. And if no move materialises before the transfer window shuts, which looks like almost certain, then they really should try and get the best out of him before he leaves as a free agent in the summer of 2021. To you, James, then, Mm. on Ozil. Do you Mm. think, uh, and David has explained it, it might well be 50-50 pro and against Ozil. Do you think there's a majority that either want him to stay or want him out, or do you think it really is 50-50? It's very, very difficult to say because the people who feel strongest in these debates are the ones that you kind of hear on social media. So uh, it it is difficult to ascertain. I, I think that there is a sadness and a weariness among Arsenal fans about this situation. Whether they think Meza Ozil is, uh, you know, should be playing in the team every week or whether they think he should be long gone. I think there is a degree to which people feel kind of exhausted by the manner in which this has played out. And I can understand that because, you know, this is not a new situation. Arsenal experienced this under Unai Emery. Uh, where Ozil was kind of in the team, out the team, then back in again. And now, you know, we're here with a new manager in an incredibly similar scenario. And actually, I think that's one of the really interesting to watch here is how does Mikel Arteta deal with this? Because he's shown already in his short reign that he's prepared to give people a second chance. You know, people like Danny Ceballos, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Granit Xhaka, they were all sort of, you know, on, in, out mm. in the cold at Arsenal. He brought them back in and made them part of the fold, part of the first team. But Ozil's a slightly different case. And I, I do wonder, 
you know, you'd think about Unai Emery. He kind of uh, dropped Ozil, left him out of the team. But when he needed results, when his back was to the wall, he called on him again. And I think at that point, Emery lost a degree of authority and credibility at Arsenal because he rode back on a decision that he had made. Arteta's a little bit different. He dropped Mesut Ozil. He left out Matteo Guendouzi. He went on and won the FA Cup. And to me, that strengthened his position. And I just wonder whether he will be as forgiving with Ozil as he has been with other players. I wonder if he thinks it might make him a little bit more vulnerable, might diminish his authority a bit. We'll see. It's going to be a really, I mean, I say fascinating one to watch. It's going to be one to watch because a lot of it is, is painfully <laughs> familiar for us. So it's going to be an exhausting one yeah. to watch. <laughs> just quickly, James, in, in mm. the interview, Mesut Ozil said... I could understand it if it was because I played badly during those 10 games, but that was not the case. So he's sort of hinting at something extra. And I saw a lot of people in response to the article speculating that it was something from above the head coaches, that this is something that had been ordered down from the top of the club. And we know that his salary has been a big burden on mm. Arsenal. Raul Sanlehi sort of came into the club around the same time that the contract was given to Mesut Ozil. I don't know if it's just a coincidence. I'm probably reading too much into it, but he left the club shortly after this interview came out, which may have been interpreted if one of Raul Sanlehi's jobs was to get Mesut Ozil out of the club, um, that he didn't succeed in that operation. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is potentially less about the coaches and perhaps more about the hierarchy and also could he be of benefit to Arsenal in certain games in this final season where they perhaps lack a bit of creative flair or do you think his time as a player is past? Great question. I mean, I think clearly, you know, there's a situation where Mesut Ozil is useful to Arsenal. I mean, you know, in the FA Cup final, Arsenal had a youngster called Matt Smith on the bench who's never played a minute for them ahead of Mesut Ozil. You know, that shows that this isn't purely about football issues. I do think there is a footballing argument against the use of Mesut Ozil. I think that if you look at Arsenal's stats from last season, I think their win percentage with Ozil in the team was around 30%, without him about 60%. Uh, I mean, if you want to look at the numbers, I think you can make the case that this is a player who's been in decline for quite some time. But I agree with you that if there was an executive movement to remove Ozil from the club with Raul Sané gone, the situation may be different. I think it's a real test. If Arsenal want to move Meza Ozil on, then they haven't done a very good job of it. And I think that if you look at Manchester United, for example, managing to shift Alexis Sanchez, now granted, it's cost them a fair bit of money, but they have got the player at the club. They have got a degree of his salary off the wage bill. Arsenal have arguably been trying to do the same with Ozil for about two years now and not managed that. So I, I do think it is an indictment of, of the people running the club too, of Raul Sanier, to a certain extent. But yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Like you say, he could not have been clearer in his interview, Mesut Ozil, that he is not going anywhere. And when a player is so strong in that situation and so resolute, Maybe there's only so much that a club can really do. James, thank you. We will talk soon. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. And with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance... 
give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Well, let's uh, move it on now to Manchester City and the headline in Adam Crafton's piece published on The Athletic today uh, is as follows. Pep Guardiola is bulletproof at Manchester City, but are all his players convinced adam joins us now from a uh, in excess tribute act concert by the sounds of it where are you um i have just checked out of the hotel in lisbon so i'm in the lobby of a hotel where music is playing in the background and there's a little fountain that you might be able to hear trickling yes i can um, hear that yes <laughs> just next to me so i don't just have um the taps on in the kitchen um so it was either that or go out into the street where cars are passing by I mean, is there a sort of late 80s, early 90s theme to the music that's played in this hotel lobby? I mean, only in that English clubs appear doomed in European competition. <laughs> um, All right, Adam, let's, let's move it on from the music that's playing it in, <laughs> in the background. Um, from what you've heard then, and this is the, uh, the gist of the piece on The Athletic, th- there is a frustration among some players at Guardiola's approach to big games. Yeah, I mean, yesterday, Sunday, the day after the game... We, we wanted to take a look at how the players felt about the tactical plan that Guardiola had implemented. Obviously, it was a different way of playing to how we would ordinarily see City play in the Premier League, where we often see them with the, that 4-3-3 formation, um, you know, several creative players in the team. And then he turns up in Leon, uh, against Lyon in Lisbon, and it's a back three matching up against the seventh best team in France. And it felt like it was, it was quite pragmatic by Guardiola standards. We wanted to get a sense of how the players felt about that. Um, and talking to, you know, not talking about one or two, talking five or six good sources close to players, all saying very similar things that the, you know, all season long they're played and trained in the same system. And then Guardiola comes along for another Champions League knockout game and it's a different plan. And, you know, there's a sense of, All the time in press conferences, he's telling us we have to be ourselves, we have to express ourselves and play our normal game. And then this comes along and and the plan changes. So I think there is a sense of confusion and frustration with these big games. Does that mean they don't respect him as a manager? Of course it doesn't. But much like supporters were looking at that team on Saturday thinking, has he got it right? I think there was a sense amongst certainly some of the players um, thinking the same. Part of the thinking behind that formation and City training with that formation during the week was that Guardiola was actually looking beyond the Leon game to the semi-final and maybe even the final afterwards. I mean, that's quite some suggestion, that. Yeah, and it was, it was put to me by a couple of different people saying that some of the players wondered whether perhaps, you know, the selection of Phil Foden on the bench, also uh, Riyad Mahrez, may just have been in mind that, you know, in the best case scenario, City could have had three games over the next week. And City have a very talented squad, hundreds, worth hundreds of millions, and Guardiola trusts a lot of players in that squad. I mean, the counter view to that is Guardiola clearly had a clear tactical plan for that game. Um, against Leon, and he felt that was the best, you know, the players capable of it. But it was a it was a suggestion that certainly, you know, people who were well placed um, were think were, were were putting that theory out yesterday. 
But Adam, we often hear these things when something goes wrong, especially for a, a big name coach, but he's made many changes before that have worked out spectacularly well. So is this just a typical reaction to a defeat like this? Or is it more symptomatic of something a bit deeper and that City have failed again at the same stage of the Champions League, made no impact on the competition they want want the most? Pep's not won it since 2011. It's phenomenal that he's won it and more than once. Um, but City don't seem to be getting any closer to their holy grail. Absolutely. And, and I think you're right. There's, you know, after a, after a significant embarrassing defeat like the one City have had, there's always going to be a lot of captain hindsights who come out and say, oh, if we'd done it this way, if we'd done it that way. And then you start connecting the dots and patterns to previous years and previous examples. And I think, you know, you're, you're right in that. And it's also true that, you know, they played Manchester United in the Carabao Cup earlier in the season. Guardiola devised a new formation for that game, apparently based on 15 minutes in training. And they were 3-0 up inside the first half of that match. So clearly there's been so many successes, the performance in the Bernabeu only a few months ago. But I think that there has been a pattern this season as well. You know, they lost three Manchester derbies. They lost the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal. They lost the Liverpool game that mattered earlier on in the season. They lost against Mourinho's Tottenham. So there is a pattern developing in big games now that City aren't producing quite how they have been in the first couple of years. One theory that's been put to me is that it's not abnormal after four years of managing one team that there's a natural drop-off and straining of relations and that demands that were very exciting in the first couple of years become a bit more tiresome. And I think that's one reason why City are so determined this summer to really bolster the squad, to refresh the squad again. They want to try and move several players out. That's not going to be easy in this market. But we know that they've already signed Nathan Ake, Ferran Torres. They'll go for another significant centre-half. I think they want a striker now as well. The one position I don't think they'll strengthen is central midfield. And they need a, and they still need to get a left-back in. So you know, you're looking at a really significant summer spend to allow Guardiola to take this squad on again. But I do think they're, they're now at a stage where the players, you know, I think they need a couple of big performances early on in this, at the start of next season just to fully regain that trust in what Guardiola is telling them. But he is into uncharted territory in, in the next season. I don't think he's, he's spent this long managing one club. No, he's not. And, and it's very rare at any, you know, what we would call super clubs now to, to see a, a manager at the very top level go for five years, maybe longer. Klopp's doing it. And, and, and you know, I think he's learned from that experience at Dortmund in terms of how he's changed the way he manages so that there isn't that burnout. Guardiola is going to have to show the same. And it's going to be interesting to see if he can adapt a little bit. And it sounds ridiculous to say Guardiola needs to prove himself. But I think he does need to demonstrate you know, that he can have that longevity at a club if that's what he wants to have. We know it's always been, it's always appeared to be beyond Jose Mourinho. Mauricio Pochettino at Tottenham by the end, it, 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 just, it just drained everyone. And I think Guardiola is also aware that you know, a result like the one he had on Saturday, if that was at Bayern Munich, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, he would be, there would be headlines this morning talking about his job. And he's very aware that he's got... A very, a very pleasant environment at Manchester City where they're very grateful to have him as manager and they will always fight to keep him as manager and, and, and he doesn't really get those questions in the way that you would expect at other leading clubs in Europe. Thank you very much for coming on, Adam. Safe journey back. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower and we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20 happy shaving and finally on the pod let's talk to our manchester united writer and co-host of talk of the devils podcast laurie whitwell whose article on the athletic today asks how do united become winners how do you answer it <laughs> well i don't think really i'm i'm qualified to say to be honest but i've given it a go haven't i um <laughs> you know show us your medals uh, i've got some 25 meter swimming medals from when i was eight i think but um uh, yeah, I mean, listen, it, 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 just looking at that match last night, I actually thought United played well and they were unlucky really with, well, well, well bad finishing, you know, bad, bad finishing, bad defending the two areas of the pitch where they should have been better. But generally, they, they probably deserve to, to win the game pretty comfortably. So I don't think that they're, they're too far away from beating teams like Sevilla, you know, and potentially winning the, something like the Europa League um, in future. But obviously, United's aspirations are bigger than that uh, titles and Champions League so I mean it comes down to individual players improving I mean what one stat that I thought was quite encouraging was that United lead the way for players 25 years and under for goals scored by um, clubs in uh, Europe's top five leagues you know in all competitions so they're ahead of Red Bull Leipzig for example and Lyon there will be natural improvements from the likes of Mason Greenwood Marcus Rashford but there need, needs to be a bit more streetwise I think um, Solskjaer touched upon that in his post-match comments Solskjaer's improve this team with the signs that he's made so this is a transfer window now to go and show that, that they're serious about being the biggest club in the world which they often tell their shareholders about the owners and, and, and the people in charge of the club um, here's an opportunity to go and actually prove it how do they do that this summer then how is it spend 120 million on one player or is it are they able to spend 120 million on one player and then 80 million on another three or it would it be we don't spend 120 million on one player we spend 120 million on five players i personally think they should go and spend the money on, on sancho i think he is a uh, generational talent 20 years old if it's 120 million there's obviously ways of staggering that um so that you know the burden isn't felt entirely in, in this window but i think that say he plays for United for 10 years it's it's 120 million over 10 years it's not a lot of money really when you're considering the quality of the play you're getting you know when you think back to what Real Madrid played for Cristiano Ronaldo 90 million you know that was absolute steal really in the end in terms of what he produced for them on the pitch so you'd hope that Sancho could produce something similar and I think he's he's proven that he has got that quality I know it's a different league but, they spend, league, but, but they spend that I and then they don't have, they don't have anything else possibly yeah I mean you know, speaking to uh, people close to the club, United were putting out the idea that 50 million net spend would be what they were coming into this COVID-affected transfer window with. Admittedly, that was before Champions League qualification, but I still think United, 
if they they need to they need to get rid of players that they don't need as well. So you've got probably five six players that if they actually sold properly, they could raise another fifty, possibly even sixty million. You know, if, if they're doing the jobs to the best of their abilities and, and getting good value for. So then you've got another player there. So if they are serious about you know challenging Liverpool and, and Manchester City, which is what they say, then go and do the business. They'd probably raise another ten million or so if they didn't pay dividends to the Glazers. Well, I've made this point in my uh, my piece uh, have, today, yes. just at the end, just a cheek a cheeky little jab, uh, just because. Well, I feel like if they're if they're quibbling over you know ten, fifteen, twenty million over Jaden Sancho, well, he's not worth this. You know, we, we think he's worth that. And they're talking about um, you know coronavirus having an effect on finances. Well, you still had the resources to pay dividends out to the tune of eleven million pounds. So you know, I don't really think that argument holds sway. There's the cynicism. David back to you yeah uh, well uh, I'm going to generate some more here uh, we, we've sort of seen the improvement on the pitch that's been clear however the cynic in me would suggest that was the easy part Manchester United becoming competitive again um, is relatively hard not to do as a manager the real difficult part is now making them taking them back to that top level to compete for the biggest honours, getting past these semi-finals and onto the finals. Will the scrutiny start to turn more sharply than ever on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? You've written a lot, lot about his reluctance to use substitutes and, and the squad not being deep enough. Well, that's his squad and this is his transfer vision that we're, we're continually told. He leads the vision for this club on the pitch and so... It's time for him to deliver. He's going to have scrutiny placed upon him because they've gone out in three semi-finals. Admittedly, you know they've got to those positions in the first place. Albeit, you know the Europa League. If they'd gone out any earlier, you would have, you know, really uh, raised eyebrows with with the sort of standard of opposition. That being said, I, I just think you know he's, he's had one summer window where they got Dan James in who you know United did a deal with Swansea for him it's it's a simple deal to do Aaron Wan-Bissaka a simple deal to do once you've decided you're going to pay that money for him Harry Maguire took all summer to complete Bruno Fernandes took all January to complete I just think that it seems time and again United are slow to react and I'm pretty sure that Solskjaer knows what he wants he does have a clear vision but I think he's hampered by the slow rate of progress and admittedly yeah there will come a time when you have to say it's on you now Solskjaer I don't think personally we're at that stage yet where it's all on him because he's he's had four players one of whom had only played one season for Swansea you know prior to joining Manchester United so I don't think that's enough of a space to, to judge him on the substitutions thing is a curious one could he have changed it earlier you know, I suppose that's up for debate, isn't it, really? Um, he obviously didn't feel that the players that were on the bench would improve United's chances of scoring a goal. He's got merit in that because of the way that Rashford, Greenwood and Marshall have all scored this season and Bruno Fernandes. But equally, could, could he have changed matters? Could he have done something quite interesting? Possibly, yeah. And I think that's a fair criticism. Um, but then again, I still go back to this idea that really for the, for the approach that he wants to, uh, you know, United on. Um, he needs support in the transfer market. Do either of you have the latest on any transfers for United? I'll pick up quickly and then hand over to Laurie. I think on Sancho, we know United are going to continue their pursuit. He's their top target. And so regardless of the determination from Dortmund to keep him, I don't think this is one that's going to go away until the window is shut. And we're not saying he will move to Manchester United. But their desire to sign him remains. It's clearly a very difficult one because of what's gone before. But equally, as Laurie's outlined and um, as 
you know, has become pretty public. Manchester United know what they need to do to get the player. We've also heard a lot about Jack Grealish and Stuart James has written about him on The Athletic today. My understanding is that actually Manchester City have shown more interest than Manchester United at this point in time. We know that Aston Villa will want to keep him. They may even want to sign him to a new contract. I think Grealish would be happy to move on for a Champions League club this summer. Uh, he's he's given great service to Aston Villa, but the amount of money that Villa's wealthy owners would, would want for him in the transfer fee may, and Laurie will tell us more, prevent that from happening. Yeah, I agree with you. David, that I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to see, and this goes back to your point, Chappers, I would struggle to see both Jaden Sancho and Jack Grealish at United. It was probably sounding a bit fantasy football to even put them in the same sentence. But there are people that think, you know, United have the resources really, if they, if they really wanted to, to, to do it. That being said, Aston Villa might well now dig the heels in that they're safe. They don't need to sell um, 70 million, 80 million for, for a player that wouldn't necessarily be a first choice starter every week is getting into the realms of Manchester City. But then again, if you're United do want to catch up and overtake them and then you, you, your likes of other European superpowers like Bayern Munich then that is kind of what they need to do I think he'd be a brilliant addition to United I think he'd provide a, a ball carrying you know midfielder that United haven't quite got not even, not even Pogba really carries the ball as well as, as Grealish does um, it sort of wins those fouls so I can see them look at they've looked at both very very much Jade Sancho is the, is the priority but you know I wonder if that sort of looks like it's not going to happen whether they do move attention to Jack Grealish Thanks very much, Laurie. Cheers, Laurie. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening and uh, we'll both be back next week. We will indeed. And can I just say, we've missed you and it's great to have you back too. That's very kind. Thank you. <laughs>